Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, first of all, welcome. Second of all, be sure to check out all the content we put out there onto the interweb. Uh, best place to get access to everything that we do is to simply follow me on Twitter, uh, which the uh, account name is at Focused Compound. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And if, of course, if you are watching us or listening to us on Spotify or iTunes, uh, hitting that subscribe button also goes a long way for us. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusCompound.com. You could also get more information on that at our Invest With Us tab at FocusCompounding.com. So, Today's podcast, this is going to be our freeform podcast, which is, uh, I think, everybody's favorite, believe it or not. Um, And oh, people asked last week if uh, you were Miami Beach Jeff, because people happened to notice that you had a glistening tan (laughs) since previous uh, podcasts. So they were Uh, like, is this Miami Beach Jeff? People were commenting uh, on the their they uh on how nice your tan looks. Tampa Jeff, I guess. Tampa yeah, I Jeff. Was, I was in I was in Florida for a week or so, yeah. Yeah, I was like not Miami, but close. I didn't disclose the location, but Tampa Jeff. There you go. Um so a lot has happened since our freeform podcast we recorded last week. Um Russia has invaded Ukraine. We talked a little bit about that last week. Right. Um but really markets around the world have been Kind of crazy. We have oil, which is above $100 a barrel. The 10-year yield and rates have been crushed. We mm-hmm. peaked around a little bit above, I think it was 2%. Now I think they're around like 1.6, 1.7 in a very short period of time. Um, uh, and we are sitting, history is being written right now on everything that's going on with Russia the United States and countries around the world have taken pretty strong measures against Russia and Russia's economy and I would say overall morale by presumably by all their citizens seems to be at an all-time low. And the entire nation, or I should say the entire world, it seems like, has really rallied against Russia um, uh, after their invasion of Ukraine. And I don't want to get into, you know, geopolitics or war strategy, because at the end of the day, we're just investors. Mm-hmm. We're both very much against war, and it's heartbreaking seeing everything um, going on on the news. But I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, how do you think Buffett is thinking about this? He has very publicly always spoken out against, you know, how much nuclear weapons scare him. He has funded things to denuclearize certain governments and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on that? What do you think he's currently thinking about? Yeah, I'm sure that's the part he's thinking about, is the nuclear part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised to see um, Russia get kicked out of SWIFT and all the other sanctions that they're putting on the country? Um, I guess uh, not really. Uh, I was surprised, I, like I said, I was surprised that it wasn't taken as a given that it, the invasion would happen, you know, in, um, given how long the buildup was and what the intelligence was and how clear it was. But uh, I, I guess because of that, 
I didn't realize how genuinely surprised some European leaders were, you know. Um, so that obviously that switch makes a lot of sense because if they really didn't imagine this in some way, um, then they would, you know, they'd be somewhat uh, more upset by it than, than countries that kind of um, were convinced of what was going to happen for a long time ahead of time. Um, you know, there were some people who who uh, spoke with uh, Russia's leader um, not long before the invasion. And so that's very difficult usually for those people, um, th you know, that they were willing to talk to them and stuff just days before and all of that. And so sometimes people can feel betrayed or whatever by that. And so the, the reaction can be quicker in those cases um, than people who never had trust in the process. Mm -hmm. So there's been sanctions from... The U.S., U.K., the EU, Canada, Japan, Australia, and other countries around the world, even Switzerland, which has always sort of notoriously been neutral. Yeah, neutral. Yeah, yeah. Um, has really come out and said that they're going to impose stuff as well. So we have the S&P 500 down 10 percent year to date. Mm -hmm. Not a lot different uh, since the invasion, right? No, I mean, even days where it's up a lot, days where it's down a lot, but not mm -hmm. a lot different. Rates have. Come down. U.S. rates. Yeah. U.S. rates. Right, because... You Not know. mortgage rates, though. I checked. Um, I've been following that. Oh. Well, as of the time we're recording this, mortgage rates may have moved a lot in the last day or so, but they had come up a bit, yeah. Um, uh, right, but risk-free rates. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say actually that all... Uh, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that r risk rates have changed by the same uh, amount. So what we're talking about is um, uh, U.S. government rates and things like that, yeah. Is this the time when it's good to really step back and like if you're thinking about like looking at new ideas and stuff like that that probably don't have exposure to Russia and are experiencing sell-offs because of the way that the market is selling off or whatever, just movements in the markets. I mean, are you just really trying, do you think like the best advice is for investors to, you know, this is the time when you could put money to work and buy great companies on sale? No, I haven't really seen a lot of things decline by a lot that would suggest that they're on sale, you know. Um, I always say that I think it's difficult to make uh, purchases based on your expectations of different events. Because even if you're, say, 80% sure of something, often it's, okay, here's how sure I am something's going to happen. Then here's what I think the reaction to that will be. And, you know, then it's a question of how much that actually influences the valuation of what you're buying into. Um there are some specific things. I actually was um, thinking of writing up something before this happened um, that probably gets about a fourth of its earnings from Russia. Um, and the stock hasn't reacted at all, uh, despite the fact that, that those assets are probably close to worthless because they'll probably have to dispose of them and probably at a price that, to, to Russians that would be willing to take it for not much. It also it, it sells into um, Finland. And so I don't know that uh, selling products to Finland from Russia is a realistic thing in the near future. Finland's not a NATO member, but they'll probably consider it at some point. Have you been following this company for some time? Maybe take us through. It's a spinoff. It's a, a, you know just a recent spinoff. Um, it it, it calls a segment in Europe, but it's quite clear that it's Russia. It also was thinking about doing some major capex there and wasn't sure if they were or weren't going to do it. I would think will not do it is the more likely one now. They'll you know at best you make minimal repairs. Um, most countries in the U.S. and even the U.K. 
a lot of Russian companies are listed in, the, are listed in London instead of the U.S. Um, you know, don't have much of any exposure to Russia, really. Uh, but for those that do have assets in the country, I do think that they're probably worthless um, to those owners just because, you know. Um, I mean, you see, you've seen the stock market. I think they'll dispose just of them. Destroyed. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I know, I just think that the it's not an economic decision. I just think that the boards and things will just decide to get rid of those things because they don't want to. They're not going to do earnings calls and things talking about what they own in those countries and what they think the future of them are and stuff. They just will want to get out of it. So the only realistic thing is to turn the assets over to to people domestically. You've seen that sort of with BP with their stake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, what do they say they're going to? And I was thinking immediately, I was like, who's going to buy that? They said that they were going to... I mean, they could have some foreign government that's close to Russia to buy it, but they would make headlines and stuff. You would have to do it quietly. Um, obviously, the realistic one is people inside of Russia. However, um, people inside of Russia don't have much in the way of currency to give you that would be um, useful to you. Obviously, they need it in their own country. You know, they have to ration the currency and stuff. Is this everything we're seeing right now? Is this how regimes collapse? Yeah. I mean, you're the, looking like morale among citizens, the financial institutions, you yeah, know, yeah. run on the banks, stuff like that. I mean, is this mm. basically near the end in a lot of, you know, is this, is that how history has been written? Uh, it's an unstated kind of goal, obviously. That's what sanctions are to put a lot of pressure on a country so that the, the, the point is not really that the leadership will say, oh, my country's being hurt so badly. Uh, I care so much about my economy. I don't want inflation. I don't want uh, my GDP to contract. So I'll stop a, a war. Uh, obviously, they're not going to do that. You know, if the um, U.S. in World War II thought, oh, this will cause a recession, I guess we'll just, um, you know, not worry about intervening in the Pacific after after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, that's not what countries will do. They'll, they're willing to take that economic cost and stuff. What it does is it puts pressure on um, the government itself in some countries. You know, in other countries, it wouldn't. But obviously in a country like um, Russia, it, it could. And that's the very, that's the very um, risky and uncertain thing. So, and the question of whether the countries wanted to do that, um, and whether they kind of understood fully, if everyone joined in on sanctions and stuff, exactly what this would do and how quickly it would do it. Mm-hmm. Do you think he's surprised by the amount of countries and everyone that have really rallied together against Russia and impose all these? strict sanctions and stuff like that i mean do you think i don't know here's the thing we don't have insight into this the the big issue is i don't know to what extent people around the top levels of russian government um expected and understood what the plan was and what they were going to do and i don't know to what extent um people lower in the government and in the armed forces and things like that clearly communicate the situation in a way that's heard at higher levels I've heard, I mean, of course, you don't know what's true and what's fake news, right, that you're reading. But from doing all this doom scrolling the past five days and reading that, it seems like even the military, like the uh, on the ground troops, they don't even know exactly what's going to happen until it's like, here's the mission, go do it. Well, if, I mean, that's the issue when you need to present. Um, when you when you need to present either that about bluffing about something or about uh, d- deception. 
when you do those things, there's um, consumption of that in your own government and in your own country. You can't openly say some things to people in your own country and present a different face to the rest of the world. So you can actually confuse people in your own country with that. Um, and confusing people in that way might mean that you don't get the assessment that you would need from them um, ahead of time. So I'm not sure if people, you know, I don't know that the central bank in Russia or something clearly communicates the risks of what was happening because I'm not sure that the risks that this was going to happen was clearly explained as a realistic possibility to the central bank. And then if you don't have that, I don't know that you get information on that. So you may not have a very good idea about that. There's lots of things usually in armies and governments and companies at much lower levels that understand the actual uh, readiness of different things uh, for certain events that isn't uh, clearly communicated up the chain and expressed necessarily in the way that it would would have the most effect on policymaking. So sometimes if you're not trying very hard to dig out that information from lower levels and question those assumptions, you may hear overly positive, you know, uh, assessments of some things from people. So you may not have a good idea of um, what would really happen. So that's the part I don't know. I, you know, the, the top levels of Russian government may be very well informed about those things. And we just don't know about it because we don't know that much about how it works. We know a lot more about how it works than like, you know, North Korea or Iran or, or things like that. But we don't know that much. And so, um, like even when there's media reports in the U.S. about what different people and uh, analysts and things in the U.S. government say, uh, that's clearly based on information that they've gathered from um, contacts in different ways and in, in Russia that are not very close to the top of the government. So like the U.S. probably has better information about what the um, Russian military thought about an invasion and stuff than about the people who actually were involved in ordering it. Mm -hmm. And so that can sometimes lead to, um, you know, confusion about those things. So it's hard to know who's surprised and in what way. Yeah, I'm sure some people in Russia are surprised. Even some people who are carrying out the orders may be surprised about certain things about it. But on the other hand, people at the top may be surprised by how different uh, the the preparedness for some things were economically, mm -hmm. militarily, whatever. But just because those things might not be communicated enough to them because they might not have thought you want to hear bad news, you're committed to doing this, you really need to hear my assessment. They may not have appreciated that, or they might have. We don't know what happens yeah. in those mm -hmm. meetings, but that's certainly possible. And so it's very hard that you a lot of times don't, you lack a lot of the information, especially the interpretation of the information, unless it's very clear about what you're going to do. And very there's a lot of candor there. So does this whole situation make investing in countries that are run by dictators just completely like out of something that we would be interested in potentially looking at? So you said that you looked at a spinoff that did business in Russia. Right. I looked at another one that has a thing in Belarus and avoided that for, you know, for that reason beforehand. Um, Belarus is is becoming very close to being uh, effectively Russian uh, controlled, you know, in, in all respects. Um, so, yeah. So I avoided that one because of that, you know. Um, there, I, I would say the issue with this 
Well, this is why I brought up a while ago when someone was talking about uh, China and stuff. And I said, well, what's the percentage chance in a given year that China invades Taiwan or something? What I meant was this. Um, the, the risk is not that there's some event and it's somewhat negative or something. The risk is a response from the world that's like this. And so then do your assets, if you're a foreigner in the country, have much of any value anymore if those kinds of sanctions are imposed, if you're in a Cold War type situation um, between those countries? If you're on other sides of effectively, you know, uh, oh, you know, a hostile um, relationship in which you're actively trying to do things, they're not military things, but everything else that you can do to um, harm each other and to influence each other's policy through, you know, coercive means. Uh, I think historically, when we look at that, it's very difficult for those assets to have value to people from a, a country that ends up with their government being hostile to the other side, whether that's World War I, World War II, the Cold War, all, all things like that. Um, those assets often end up in some way being transferred into domestic hands. And um, so, you know, you don't really, you don't really effectively own those things. Something will happen where you'll have to get rid of it at a, a fire sale price or you'll be locked out of having it, or you'll just have to dispose of it because societal attitudes your government whatever tells you you got to get rid of this so you know um I, I just think that that's the case in countries where that could happen what if you owned a stock currently that had exposure to russia i mean like coca-cola has exposure to russia oh it's not a big it's not a big deal just if it's not a huge part of their business I mean, what can you do at this point or what yeah uh, there's not a lot that you can do with that. Um, there's a lot of countries that have that. Um, you know, U.S. companies have so little direct exposure to Russia. And also, they just don't, there's not much trade with Russia. I mean, the U.S. has very, very little to do with Russia economically. I mean, almost nothing. So we're talking about, you know, just totally insignificant that way. Um, so, I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily worry about that. I can't think of many that have particularly large exposure to Russia. Uh, I mentioned, you know, one that, that had uh, assets there, but selling into the country and stuff is different. I, you know, in, in general, if your assets aren't there, if you don't have operations there, if you could restart your operations at a later date, if it's things like brand names, worldwide stuff, I would feel a little differently about that. If it's that you have some commodity that's inside the country or that depends in some way on those assets, that, that would be the one that would be difficult, yeah. Are you surprised what the... I guess the whole world has done to go after Russia for all of this. Like I said, a little bit. Given that Ukraine isn't in NATO. Right. But they did also force them to denuclearize. Oh, there's all sorts of stuff. We want to go back on the different agreements that there have been between countries with what they've stated about Ukraine. Um at different stages. So Ukraine right after the cold war, Ukraine right after the, the, um, uh, you know, whatever we would call the first invasion, the, the incursion into specific areas. Um, I think, like I said, I was, I think I was surprised by how, um, well, here's this thing that happens. It's happened in a bunch of different geopolitical things. It happens sometimes with economic things. And we talk a little bit about it. Sometimes people say, it's unimaginable, meaning it's so bad, I don't want to think about it, instead of it's not likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And I think that's what was happening in the buildup to this. And so I said on a podcast a while ago that I was very surprised by not just world leaders and things, but media reports of, well, you don't really know what's going on. No one does something like that in the way that it was done in terms of troop movements and 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 even things that they were saying and stuff like that uh, at all since World War II, basically. So explain that, though. Like, what was that tell for, like for you? Well, they were going to invade Ukraine and not in a small way from multiple sides at the same time with an intent to uh, eliminate the government in some way. I don't know how long it was going to go on, what they were going to do and all that, but they were preparing for a, a major war to take over a country. That was what the movements were. And the U.S. government said that and showed pictures of it and said, this is what's happening. You know, if if this kind of thing was happening by either side to do this with a country nearby, which, you know, in most cases there were not possibilities for this in the Cold War, the reactions that you would have seen it would have been very different and the adjustments in the military would have been very different. And it's kind of good that that hasn't happened so far here. Um, I mean, they've adjusted some things with NATO, but I mean, they would have become very worried about major conflict, you know, worldwide if a country was doing this and not clearly saying exactly what we intend to do and how limited it will be and all that kind of stuff. This is just not, you know, common. Um, but it happens all the time in world history and we know what it looks like. And so it shouldn't have been a surprise in that way, I think. Because sometimes people say, you know, like, oh, well, that's from a time of whatever, and that's not going to happen now. Um, it, it's complicated. I don't know. I think certain European leaders and and things have more of a feeling of, of um, that Russia had more uh, a part in Europe, that it was more similar to other European countries and all that. And I don't think that the government stuff in Russia ever thought of itself that way or having to um, approach things the same way that, that European governments do. So what do you think happens from here? And I know that's a tough question, but Ukraine and Russia were speaking yesterday. The actions since then have really shown that, well, those talks probably didn't go too well as Russia is sending missiles into Ukraine. Ukraine sent in an application to join the European Union what happens if they do that? I mean, what does Putin well, do they, at this they, point they to save face? I mean, what what do you think? They can't do I that. don't know. I mean, are his days limited? I mean, I don't know. I mean, these are tough questions, but just kind of thinking through, it's like, how does this end well for anybody, quite frankly? Because how does he end? How does Putin stop and feel like to his people it was a success? I just like the game theory of all of it. It's like, I don't know how this ends well quite frankly yeah other than putin no longer being a dictator i don't know if that's well okay that's complicated i don't know what the result is yeah i don't know that that was the intent of what the, the white house is listening right now so i don't know if that's the intent of what the countries that that did the sanctions wanted to achieve i, th I think it's the unstated thing about why sanctions could be effective against a country but um, these kinds of, this amount of pressure, I mean, we haven't talked about that much, but the economic pressure on Russia is, is huge. Oh, sure. And yeah. devastating to the country. Um, and it causes a lot of pain to the people in that country. Um, and it's incredibly destabilizing. Have you seen the amount of people protesting in Moscow? Yeah. It's incredible to see. So You don't do that in Russia. 
it's more the people going to the ATMs, you know, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. That's the the risk longer term and all of that. Um, it's just a lot of, there'll be a lot of lack of money unless you print a lot of money and you don't have a lot of currency from the rest of the world and stuff to back that up. And so you're basically just printing paper at that point to just try to keep your economy moving along normally when you're this shut off from that sort of thing. It's, um, I don't think people are used to that idea of what it's like to have something that you take for granted that way. You know, it's like air to an economy. Um, it's like oxygen to have that happen with money that is happening there. So, um, you know, you may still have the protective capacity uh, and you may still even have the desire to get things done. But without money, it's very hard to grease the wheels of, of commerce and, and accomplish anything even inside your own country. Um, so it, it just leads to a lot of complications. So, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, so I think it complicates things and we don't know what the outcomes of those will be and whether they'll be positive or negative and what that means uh, and what we mean by positive and negative and those sorts of things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, there could have been worse outcomes after the Cold War than what happened. So the fact that you had this outcome, which wasn't particularly pleasant and the world wasn't that happy with um, the leadership in Russia for, what, 20-some years or whatever. Um, but there could have been worse and less stable outcomes that would have been uh, even more concerning. There could have been better outcomes. Could have been a lot better outcomes, but there weren't. So I don't know what would happen this time if something like that mm-hmm. occurred. So early 2020, you had said on the podcast that financials looked interesting. I think end of 2021, some fossil related, fossil fuel related things looked interesting. Yeah, I'm curious if there's anything in particular that looks interesting today. So financials probably, uh, I don't know, you know, what's happening today and, and things like, I'm literally today as a recording this and things like that, but probably in general prices for financials uh, from these events have been affected somewhat negatively relative to the market and prices for things related to fossil fuel have been uh, reacting somewhat positively. So that is that, you know, their finance may be more attractively priced than before and um, fossil fuels less attractively priced, um, you know. I think there are things to look at. I don't know. Obviously, there's some problems from this for U.S. financials. I mean, European financials have direct impact more of what's happening in their economies and stuff from this. But U.S. financials are more the the pressure that happens from um, what it does to rates, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it even long-term rates and things like that come down, um, and that makes it harder you know, for the Fed to raise rates and things like that. How easy it is for the Fed to raise rates is kind of related to like how likely to, you know, at what point you invert the curve. Um, and so if you have declining, um, let's see, do you have 10-year yields anywhere there? Yeah, I'm trying like to find out. So, uh, I mean, the Treasury publishes the yield curve itself on Treasury yield curve. Yeah, there we go. Rate drops. That's the headline. Treasury yield falls sharply. 10-year rate drops toward 1.7%. Yeah. With focus on Russia Ukraine conflict. Right. So, you know, there's demand for for um risk-free government, uh, risk-free uh US do- dollar denominated assets. And so that it can have an effect on financials if you if the Fed intends to raise rates on the short end and rates stay low on the long end. And that, you know, would tend to be kind of a possibility, especially to have an inverted curve. 
more likely that that'll happen quicker. Yeah, mm-hmm. that it, you know the Fed would run the risk of inverting the curve uh, more quickly, fewer rate increases to do that, because um, there tends to be you know in, in conflicts like this and stuff uh, a lot of demand for. Um, government securities of certain governments that are seen as safe during that period. Um, it, you know, obviously though, it can have a different effect on like inflation things. So it may have an effect. It, it, it tend to, it tend to be lower real yields, right? That's the issue. It, you know, the actual demand and supply that we have changes that, uh, with, with a conflict like this and stuff. So you tend to have lower real yields across the yield curve, but especially it, you'd feel it more. Um, not at the shortest end, which is, you know, influenced a lot by the central bank and expectations for the central bank. So that's where you would feel it. And that's why you've seen that come down, but it doesn't mean that there'll be less inflation and stuff like that. So. So what do you think? Do you think the fed is going to have to reassess based on the way that the fed has been, or based on the way that treasury yields have been moving? I think the feds always had this problem from what I see. Uh, you can think of it to sort of very simple rule or whatever. There's lots of different ways for should we raise or should we not, whatever. In general, if nominal GDP growth is really strong, then you probably want to raise rates. And if you're going to invert the curve, you probably want to stop raising rates or cut them. And that's as simple an explanation of what a central bank might do normally. Um, that's not how they think about it directly, but I think that's pretty good estimate that you know so unless like you see nominal gdp slow down um you don't see a lot of need not to keep raising rates but then as you get closer to inverting a yield curve you would want to not do that because if you invert the yield curve basically um that is going to contribute to a contraction in in um credit basically right so usually when you have a recession you know Generally, recessions, I mean, it's rare for recessions to happen without some sort of change in, in credit being the underlying reason for it. Different kinds of credit, we might mean trade credit, uh, credit conditions that don't have to do with the risk-free rates and stuff, but have to do with counterparties not trusting each other or whatever. But money has to become tighter. Um, so, you know, you can have a recession in China, even if they cut rates, because there's probably likely to be credit contraction in their real estate market, regardless of what the government does, because they want, you know, people don't want to be involved in, in lending to those things. Russia, you know, once you say these things about Russia, um, even if you don't impose sanctions that force um, different financial institutions not to do these things, they'll on their own decide to pull back from that. And so credit will contract. Um, and with the U.S., domestically i think it, it's not that easy to see the likelihood for credit contraction unless you get to the point where it doesn't make a lot of sense for banks in terms of the cost of their money and what they can lend it out to being attractive so the risk for like recession and stuff is really not about like oh not enough demand or whatever but a risk that just has to do with the, the um it continuing to extend credit doesn't make a lot of sense like you don't have a lot of credit growth because it's not desirable from the point of view of the banks so a much higher rate at the long end of the curve would give you more room to do what you want to do to stop inflation. And so a low rate, I think, would not do that. I don't think you want to keep raising rates um, beyond the point where you've um, inverted the curve. And that's, right now, not a sufficient rate to accomplish what you want with inflation. 
you know, so if you look, what, what do we have for 10 year yield right now? 10 year yield is at 1.726. I don't think anyone thinks 1.75 is what you need to stop inflation. So mm. that, so a Fed funds rate at the same level as a 10 year, you know, to completely flat curve is not what you, the, um, probably the rate that they feel. And that I think analysts and stuff would feel is the rate that you should be at. So that's the problem. So then what do they do? Depends on how bad inflation is mm -hmm. and those things. You can usually convince yourself that the curve's not going to invert or that it'll invert, but it won't last that long or that the inversion doesn't mean what it usually means. You can come up with excuses for that as you approach it. And they usually, uh, you know, news reports and things usually do explain why it's different this time. Um, you know, and then the actual recession part of it comes later. There's quite a bit of lag. In fact, usually the curve's uninverted by the time that you really have the recession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. It's a question to have when you get really close to that level. And it's a question to have if things change a lot uh, with the, those yields rising a lot. The other way to fix it is that the longer term yields can rise a lot. So longer term bottoms can drop a lot. Um, you know, we don't know. It's possible if people get paid a lot more in short term money that they'll desire having a lot more short term money. Um, it's also possible that if you have, I mean, it's very possible that people's psychology will change over time. If you're getting um, strongly negative real yields with the price of um, goods and services going up, uh, the things you can secure ahead of time, you secure now. And so if you anticipate a raise in the next year, then you spend that raise now. You'll get more bang for your buck today. Um, the raise is fairly secure uh, in your mind. And so you want to spend ahead of time. You probably, I mean, you know, savings rates come down a lot and stuff, but given the current level of rates and things, it probably doesn't make much sense to have any savings. Rate, mm -hmm. you sure. know? Yeah. But it doesn't change overnight people's uh, behavior. People don't go from thinking that saving is a good idea to thinking, oh, I've got to spend everything because I'm living in a very inflationary world and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and if people don't think that, then maybe that world doesn't happen. If everyone does think that, then maybe that world does happen. But at some point, that has an effect on longer-term yields and things like that, just because there's a lot of demand for um, for money to expand things and all of that. We've seen some of that last year with businesses and expanding inventories, borrowing more, you know, all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If you were looking at a bank today, is there some sort of lending that you would feel more comfortable with just given the nature of the rate market and everything that's going on right now, the environment. The bad thing to do is mortgages right now. Yeah. In terms of serious risks, the bad thing is mortgages. The good thing is, um, uh, lending to businesses for business activities, you know, not, um, I mean, of course everyone lends for like commercial mortgage stuff and all that, but actually lending for working capital, and things like that, you know, term loans are things to acquire stuff and to expand and all that. If you're spending on CapEx, if you're expanding your inventories, if you want to acquire something and then pay it off over time, all of that kind of stuff is sort of the area you'd want to be in more. It's much more um, about business results. And obviously credit quality would be really high in the current environment that we have. You know, people say, why don't junk bonds, you know, yielding, uh, why aren't junk bonds, you know, spreads widening and all that. Um when you have rates as low as they have in terms of what they have to pay and nominal GP as high as it is, uh, it's, it's hard to have problems paying your interest. 
mm-hmm. you know, if, if the underlying state of the economy in dollar terms is growing so much faster um, than your interest payments, that's not much of a problem. It's when that reverses that it's more of a problem. So, um, it, you know, it's it's possible to for those things to make sense, even if you have um, uh, even if you have rates going up a lot. That's true in a lot of things. You know, it's it's not necessarily a, I think it'll take time for people to adjust to like rates in housing. So, you know, it, they, they go, okay, rates went up, prices went up. I missed my chance, you know, so does that slow people down for a while? Psychologically, I think it does. But you, you see the same things in stocks and used cars, whatever. Um, but I think in the longer term, it, there's not anything that would like, like financially you have huge incentives to buy houses and stuff now. And that's part of what probably the Fed wants to discourage over time is that, oh, we've, these are really excessive incentives to have now for the environment we have now. It made sense maybe right after a housing crash. It made sense maybe right after a pandemic. But it probably doesn't make a lot of sense to basically, if you're thinking rationally, be thinking, oh, I should be spending way more than I normally do. I should be saving much less than I normally do. I should be anticipating the future more and baking that into my decisions now. Um, pulling everything forward, all of that stuff in a way that is um, not the long-term trend. It, it encourages you to spend more than you should in a long-term trend, to behave in a way that's different. And that's something that you want when you have a really weak economy in terms of lots of capacity and no uh, demand. But it's not what we have now. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of take that away. And um, I think the longer... The issue is more the longer term rates, but people often believe that these things, you know, if you've had them for a long time, that they won't change. So there's a belief that, you know, the long, something will happen that long term rates will stay where they are no matter what. And so the Fed can only raise it so far and then has to come back down because long term rates are where they are. You know, that might be true, but all, in all the past times that this has happened, um, you know, over the last 20 years or so, there hasn't been much inflation. So it, there hasn't been much a reason for long term rates not to come back down um so you know that's part of it um but yeah i I think the the issue is the um the curve how flat it is and things like that that are more of an issue for banks than anything else i don't see a lot of problems with their balance sheets and i don't see a lot of problems with what the demand that they'll be for their product for their commodity balance sheets meaning like type of charge-offs and stuff like that types of lending they're doing and leverage Uh uh-huh yeah i don't see problems with any of that they've got plenty of equity um they haven't made a lot of loans that are particularly risky in recent times. Um, there's, I mean, just all sorts of things about it. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't worry about any of that. Um, you know, if anything, the stuff that will be threatening to banks, uh, solvency and stuff is, is interest rate risk and federal reserve, um, actions and things like that more so than credit things right now. Now at some point you have a recession. So then it changes for some things depending on what you're lending to and stuff. But at some point there'll be a recession. We don't know when it'll be. Mm-hmm. So where or what should people be spending their time on? I mean, what are you currently looking at? Everything that's going on in the world, right? We talk a lot on these freeform podcasts about all these macro things. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that we're not macro investors or no. traders. We're not speculators. So in our neck of the woods, everything that's going on, it's been challenging because a lot of stocks still aren't cheap. Sure, they're mm-hmm. cheap from 52-week highs, but they're not actually cheap right. on how we would value them. 
So again, is it just continuing to slug away and wait for opportunities? Yeah, I think that you can use macro things or whatever to be aware of what might be out of whack and what might be dangerous to buy um, because it's in a shortage now and that might not be this case in the future. Um, and, you know, other things like that, I think, make sense. I don't think it necessarily tells you what things you should buy, but it does maybe warn you away from certain things that if you're not aware of the situation, um, you might misinterpret. You might think that, mm-hmm. you know, it's just particularly attractive. Uh, and we talk about that with, you know, like um, chip stocks and things like that. Yeah. You, it's it's fine to buy them if you are convinced of a change in the future versus the past, like in terms of the cyclicality of the business and everything. But you have to understand when you're buying a commodity um, type thing that the state of that commodity is important. Whether we're talking about financial, you know, for financials, money is the commodity, you know. And so whether we're talking about that or we're talking about you know, fossil fuels or whatever, it, obviously those are the things that matter a lot. For things that aren't commodity stuff, you know, it, it's much easier to know what they're worth in any part of the economic cycle and I wouldn't worry so much about it. So I just worry about like not buying into stuff that you don't understand how it's doing um, in terms of where it is in the cycle, right? You, It might be fine to buy a used car, dealer might not, but it's not good to buy it now thinking that times are normal. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to just go on like PE or EV to EBITDA or something like that. But businesses you understand and you understand where they are in their cycle or that they don't have much of a cycle, then I think you can just go on business as usual with those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like Russian stocks, even pre all this, would probably be the off cheapest. limits for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. They would be off limits for me, though they were probably the cheapest in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, this yeah. idea of like risk, right? And like being compensated for that risk. There were over, you know, let's call it Friday. So before the weekend when all this other stuff came out about different sanctions and stuff like that. I mean, just enormously low piece, to your point, right. cheapest stocks ever, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wonder if investors feel compelled to buy, you know, the most well-known or dominant, you know, in quotes, companies in Russia that are right. trading at those cheap prices. And then there's just situations for us where it's like, it's just completely off limits in the too hard pile. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious. I mean, you would never invest in Russia right. for a lot of the reasons that we've spoken about. Quite frankly, a lot of, the, I mean, would you have forecasted a world war? No, but everything that has kind of happened. Right. So I'm kind of curious. It's just I mean, a war between Russia and Ukraine. Okay. To be clear. Okay. To be clear, sure. But right. I would say maybe not. But I mean, it, to your point, right, you just said about being compensated for like a low EV to EBITDA or looking at companies that are just trading cheap today. Again, it's really just business as usual for a lot of people, focusing on what you know, investing in only what you know and can understand. And understanding that just because something's cheap or that's not uh, a margin of safety, right? It doesn't just produce a margin of safety. Mm-hmm. I've looked at like the Turkish um, Coca-Cola bottler, for okay. instance. Even though I don't get, say, Chinese stocks or large Chinese stocks and things, I'd be too worried about that. I, I wouldn't necessarily be worried about a bottling company for one of the major companies in a, in a country that has, you know, uh, monetary policy and things like that that are a real problem. There's there's gigantic inflation in, in uh, Turkey, and they don't seem to have an uh, idea on how they would um, stop that from happening or whether they want to stop that from happening. Um, so there isn't a real commitment to doing that. And so there's lots of risks with that, but at some price, something like that would be attractive. It has a certain durability and things like that. Um, so, 
you know, I've I've looked at those things. I've looked at when there was concern the euro might break up. You know, we're going back ten years now or something. I looked at some Portuguese uh, companies, um, and I would have done well to have invested in one of them at least that I liked a lot, um, but was worried about the currency mismatches and things like that. They had quite a bit of debt that would have, of course, been in the in currency that they no longer had. Um, you know, that, that will, could be mismatched with their own, um, costs and revenues and things like that. So I, I think it's, you have to assess risks in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so like Russia is technically, Russia is almost a top 10 economy. It's a little outside the top 10 probably. So, um, big economy considered like an emerging market. I'm sure emerging markets have risks, um, but that's not the risk that I was talking about with Russia. You know, it's not the risk that I talk about with, with China. Um, the risks are different. It has to do with the political system and all sorts of things like that, the political culture. And um, the whether there might be risks that you don't... Uh, there's there's some certain, sort of, you know, what we'd say catastrophic risk, right? Like a seizure of assets? By the state? Yeah, seizure assets by the state or you having to sell out um, or it becoming not very valuable. Um, any of those things where the assets really don't have a lot of value because of things that happen, um, you know, uh, globally and all of that. Uh, so that's different than, say, there's a bunch of other emerging markets where I think there are risks that they have, but I wouldn't see the risks as exactly the same that way. Um, so, you know... I. I think it can be good to go look around trying to find things that are mispriced and all that. But I don't know about a lot of these bets of um, people seem to be trying to the absolute most cheapest thing or the absolute best thing, even though it's the most expensive thing or whatever. You know, uh, There's a lot of different choices you can have on a spectrum and you don't necessarily have to look at the fastest growing thing with the highest PE. There could be something that's pretty fast growing that has a more reasonable price. And you don't necessarily need to look at the thing that has the 2 PE. It might be that something with the 7.5 PE is actually the best value stock in a sense. Mm-hmm. And it could be in a country that is overlooked or somewhat not well liked right now or whatever, but isn't necessarily someplace um, uh, that is like the middle of um, the news and stuff. I, I feel like people think I have to have a reaction just one of these things. Mm-hmm. I have to react in some way. This has to, you know. It does affect the portfolio. Sure, it affects our portfolio in some ways, I'm sure. We have some things that are tied to commodity things. Um, they are somewhat affected by natural gas and things like that. We have some things that are affected by interest rates in the U.S. These things affect those. Um, but that doesn't mean that we suddenly decide we need to make a lot of changes. When we make investments, if the investment was, well, if Russia invades Ukraine, then then we shouldn't have done this. Then it wasn't a very good investment. Sure, yeah. You know, because, you know, um, the future is going to be a lot more things could happen in the future than I think uh, than I can think ahead of time are going to happen most likely. And also then will have had happened. Um, so, you know, if you have an investment that worked out, if it, for it to work out, things need to go in a certain way. And that's what happened. I don't know if that's a great investment. You were right in predicting the future and it worked out. But you know, there has to be a certain, um, you can't be that fragile that it depends on one certain path being what happens. So you need, usually you want to invest in things that if there's a recession soon, 
you'll do okay in it. If there's not a recession for a very long time, you'll do okay in mm-hmm. it. A yield curve inverting, a war, whatever, being the end of your investment, uh, going from being one of the best things you could do to be one of the worst, is probably not the kind of thing that you wanted to pick in the first place. And the mistake was picking it in the first place then. And it's not really, oh, I didn't see that coming. It's, oh, why did I buy something? You know, I would need so much compensation for something being very um, risky that way. Sure. And sometimes there there is. Sometimes you do get enough compensation for certain things. You know, um, we're talking about a few countries where the assets might be worth almost nothing, you know, uh, under certain conditions. But usually a lot of the Ben Graham type purchases do work out. I mean, during World Wars, um, Ben Graham talked about buying the bonds of governments that were at the time losing the war um, as being an attractive thing to do. Because of the yield? And the durability. Yeah, so it has good yield. But if it is in any way successful, uh, they'll be valued like other government things at the end of the the process and all that. And and these were countries that were allied with major countries um, or were seen as being allied with them in some ways that they were certainly supported by them. Um, And, you know, that's, yeah. I mean, that can be a strategy that makes a lot of sense. It's not something that we do, but obviously there's some government bonds and things of different countries that at times like this could get to very um, high yields. You know, usually investing in government bonds doesn't make sense for individual investors. Sometimes in the crisis type things, it might make sense because the one thing you know is that eventually government bonds tend to be valued very highly in the market, probably too highly, you know, for all but the, a few governments that are truly risk-free. Um, so, you know, they, they, like I said, they have a lot of durability. They tend to kind of go to, if you want to think of a low yield as a high multiple, they're kind of will regain blue chip type status at some point, you know? I mean, you saw that with Euro countries and things where they had high yields and then they ended up after, you know, intervention there for years, having yields that were much like any other government that were really low. So those, obviously, if you bought things in in Portugal or Italy or whatever 10 years ago, you would have done very well in those bonds, you know, many times better than buying German bonds. Your German bonds wouldn't have done that well, but because the the spreads narrowed so much on those things. So it can be right to do that. Um, I think that in many cases, it's more complicated than individual investors need to be. You don't need to do something in scale of many billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So you can completely ignore currency markets, fixed income things, whatever, if those are things that you don't want to be involved in. You can completely ignore Russia. It's not very difficult. Russia and Ukraine are not. Yeah, you don't need to feel the need to go do anything. But you can also completely ignore China. There's no reason why you have to invest in China. And that was my question, right? That's what Munger said. He said, I feel about Russia the way some people feel about China. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel about China the way some people feel about Russia. I also feel about Russia the way people And he feel talked about, about Russia, why Buffett would not invest. But, you know, he did invest in BYD. He but he when they, Munger invest in BYD. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> but when they asked about it, he basically Munger basically said that Buffett is comfortable with a certain amount of things, and he just stays within that circle. Yeah, I don't. I mean, look, I think it's okay, I think it's fine to. Um, I, I don't think you want to think about risk as like just a number that you have. Like, say China, right? All right. So, what's the risk in China? The risk in China is a one-party state that's going to do what needs to be done for the Communist Party of China. I don't mean that in a selfish way or something, but the number one uh, decision for them to make is not what's best for you as an investor or anything like that. Um, It's not even what's necessarily best for the country. It's secondarily what's best for the country, as long as 
that means that it's what's best for the party. And I don't mean an ideology with a party. You have to understand that differently than in the U.S. or something where their parties are highly associated with certain ideologies now. I just mean it, it's a decision that the durability of the party over time, keeping the party together all on one line of what they choose, um, we can choose any path, you know, but we have to keep everyone together and we have to do what's necessary for the party that way. I mean, we talk about Russia and China and them watching each other and deciding about what does this mean for us and whatever. One thing that definitely, I think, has to have had an impact on China, their political system, is watching what happened to the, China, uh, the um, uh, Soviet Communist Party, what happened to it in the later stages of the Cold War and following that, and that for you to have order and transitions into different things over time um, you have to keep a party together and move it in whatever direction you want, um, which means that there's a high degree of importance to that. Uh, I also think there were probably certain things that they may have been concerned about that they saw with um, different parts of the state there, um, but turned out to be more independent of the uh, Communist Party than they would like. You know, in the case of Russia, their their military in the, at the end of the Cold War tended, it was probably something that China, that concerned China, was how independent the Russian military turned out to be from the Communist Party there. And so I think the, the party is the most important thing in a, in a state like that. And it has nothing to do with ideology. You know, I think in South Africa, apartheid, at the end of that process, the most important thing was the party. Um, and that made some of the decisions about what to do. And eventually, okay, we can shift from being a party that does this to... A completely different policy but we have to maintain order in the party and cohesion that way and i don't think that people in countries like the united states certainly but also europe understand that um viscerally i don't think they understand that at all what that really means um to run a country that way i don't think they really understand what it means for the party and the state to be so associated in that way and the differences um that you have that way in a system in which the Parties will switch, and in which most everyone in those parties um, uh, understands that they'll be in the opposition, they'll be in the minority, and in the majority from time to time, both ways. They don't expect to have a permanent majority ever, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so they behave very differently in that way. And we behave very differently in that way. Um, and, you know, that, so that's very important to keep in mind with some of these economies. There aren't a lot of huge economies that have political systems that are so different from um, uh, multi-party, democratic, whatever you want to call it, um, societies, societies with more contested political situations. Um, it's much less common. And so that's why I, we mention things like Russia and China together because they there are not many very big economies that have totally different political systems. You know, China has a political system that now, what, there's maybe half a dozen left that use the same political system in the entire world and most every one of them except for China and um, in Vietnam are not very significant countries at all. And it used to be something that, you know, during the Cold War and stuff, you look at a map, there are many different countries that had the sort of approach. Um, so I just think it's very easy now, right, for people to look and like see comparability between places mm -hmm. as just investment. You know, oh, I can buy in Japan or I can buy in China. It's very different places. Um, 
you know, in, in terms of those sorts of things. And so there are risks that you have to consider in each of those places. Um, Could you ever get comfortable enough with the risks in China, for example? No. And I mentioned Turkey and Turkey has, Turkey is an in-between state. Um, Turkey is certainly a place that over time could transition to be looking a lot like uh, Russia. And you can transition back the other way. There's many states that have, um, you know, uh, in Europe, there's a ton of them. But, you know, that we could certainly, ones that did transition, um, would the, the really obvious ones are like, you know, Portugal and Spain. But there's actually quite a few other countries that at times could have gone in a more authoritarian direction permanently or in a more uh, open direction permanently. And they've been in between. Turkey has vacillated a lot over time, a ton of different coups and different, very strong um, suppression of some stuff. And at other times, fairly open um, and competitive political system. So I don't see what could ever happen, in, though, in China that could change my mind about that. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's very difficult to, uh, you know, there are a couple countries that have effectively one party systems in which the party dominates so effectively, even though it's technically a fairly open system in some ways. Um, I d- I've never invested in them, and I don't know that I could, but I mean, I could think about it in some cases. But I think it's very hard. I think uh, a, um, uh, the necessity for a specific party to maintain control over the entire society um, is tricky for an investor to invest in someplace like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really tough. But like I said, some of them transition over time. There have been a lot that started out very hard that way and then over a period of decades did widen things out. There have been other ones that have gone in the opposite direction. Um, you know, if you look over a longer stretch of history, it's more common. So same thing about this invasion. This is not an uncommon and unprecedented event in someone's lifetime. This is not a once in a hundred year type event um, that you should never expect to see. But it is if you focus on the very recent period of time that you would think it's unimaginable. Mm-hmm. But, I'm, you know, it's very imaginable. It's happened many times, even in that part of the world. It's happened many times, something like this. So, um, you know, you have to keep that in mind. And I think that that's, I don't think that you should think of like effectively one party systems as being really the same sort of risks that you're facing in um in systems like you're used to investing in the united states and stuff most people that we talk to don't have any experience investing really in one party uh, states mm-hmm. it was interesting have you heard munger i'm sorry have you heard monish the other guy that his name starts with them mm-hmm. uh describe his investment in turkey where he bought, it was like a $20 million market cap mm-hmm. company. And he thought that the value of the business was close to a billion. And I think he bought a third of it. So call it like what, six and a half million dollars. And he said that he was actually surprised that he was able to get that much, but just speculators so in certain countries and stuff yeah, like that. Very, very speculative. Where the liquidity the comes turnover, in. Yeah. It's interesting though. I mean, have you heard him describe that? I mean, yeah. How do you, is that a situation in your eyes? We're not saying what he did was right or wrong. I think he's actually up like close to 10 times the investment in like 18 months or something. But if you valued something at a billion and it's a $20 million market cap, is that sort of like a call option that you could see yourself doing if it was in a country like Turkey or is it just completely not even worth, you know? I'm not investing in Turkey. Turkey is 
<laughs> day to day, Turkey, you're going to be thinking that Turkey is more volatile than Russia or um, China. But in the long run, I, I could conceivably be more likely to invest in Turkey than I would be in either of those countries. Um, but very, very volatile. And the mm -hmm. political system is very volatile. And they don't have any handle on inflation right now. And that's happened before. Um, but, it, you know, it is possible, certainly. Um, it has... Uh, there's a... I think for various reasons, there's, it would be possible if you really like the assets and stuff, right? So if you really like the assets and you really trusted the people involved and you felt that what they were doing was very non-political. I don't think that I would want to own an asset in Turkey that was seen as politically important. I'm not sure I would want to own something involved in utility things, in media things and whatever. Um, certain other strategic things I would probably want to avoid. But if I saw something that was seen as being completely harmless in terms of its risks to society and stuff uh, and normal, that would be completely capitalistic and all that. And you knew and trusted people involved uh, because you, there are issues about that, you know, in Turkey in terms of connections between different um, groups that don't own a lot of stock and cross holdings have a lot of money and then also have some involved, some possible involvement in political things and stuff that they could fall out of favor or whatever. Um, there are risks. But uh, I, I think, yeah, that if the asset is cheap enough and good enough, that's why I mentioned something like a Coke bottle or something, not yeah. because it's particularly cheap, but it's something that people can imagine and understand. This is right, industrial warehouses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your tenants are like your Amazons and things like that. Blue chip customers, you yeah. said. Yeah. Um, but you'd have to trust the people involved and you know so little about the country. Now he talked about visiting and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. and everything, yeah. Um, so that's the hard part, you know, that I would understand so much less about it and understand the people so much less. He said that actually the, the friend that he was there with that is a, a citizen there, mm -hmm. he said that he also invested in the company but sold after it was a double. Yeah. Because he's like, well, Monish, you don't, you know, the politics here in this country, blah, blah, blah. And Monish, of course, didn't sell. But yeah, and you might want to do it for the longer term when you invest in those in, in good look, it's always interesting to look for a really good business in a country that people are a little worried about the country. Um, but it has to be allowed to thrive over time and you have to be allowed to get the money out of it if that happens. Um, you know, or, or the asset has to have a lot of value mm -hmm. that way. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult when you're like a commodity or something and the only value of the asset is control of the asset being sold out into a commodity way into a global a place which is basically the kinds of assets that russia has generally or that people can invest in, in russia um you know as opposed to a really popular brand or something inside the country um that's different though you know those can be nationalized too and everything and have been they were in cuba uh, they had popular brands and things that were totally taken over so um yeah i think that things that have more like um value domestically and all that that you have more faith in that and aren't just about taking something out of the ground and getting out of the country quickly. But that's the thing that we just said, that I just said I wouldn't be that interested in is how most multinationals, you know, over time have made a lot of money. Is, you know, you have an oil deal in a country that is pretty unstable or whatever, you get a lot of money from it over time by taking a lot out of the ground. Eventually there's problems, it falls apart, whatever it gets taken from you. But you've made a lot of money. And so that can work for things. We're not really big on commodity things, I'd say. Mm-hmm. 
what if you looked at a company that was international like that and it was cheap over, you know, for the past 10 years, similar to the situation he described. I think he said it was like a $20 million market cap mm-hmm. for the previous 10 years. I mean, I, sometimes I think like if I were to look at that, I would be like, well, how do you know in this country, in this situation that it's ever going to re-rate? But <laughs> that one, like I said, it went up like 10 times or close to it. bother me. I invested in things in Japan. Mm-hmm. And they, a lot of those things have probably gone nowhere for 10 years or whatever. Um, there's often an argument that they've been cheap for a while. It's usually an argument. It's even an argument in the U.S. with companies that have been fairly cheap and then have a much higher multiple in the future. I think we've dedicated a whole podcast to that. Yeah, it seems pretty common to me. Yeah, I don't know about that. Like, okay, so is there some issue of why it wouldn't re-rate? Um, I mean, I guess you're thinking about, oh, well, I'll, I need to attract other investors into it. You know, I've never thought about it that way. Even things in Japan and stuff, in some cases, management bought it out. If there's any market for corporate control, you know, someone will buy it out. Someone will buy the assets. So I've never thought that I need other investors in public markets to be the reason why a stock goes up. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't go up, eventually someone else will, you know, buy it. Uh, private equity or whatever will buy it. Sure, you know, the cycles can be very short in some of these things, you know, uh, in some of these countries. So the it can be that not that many years from now you're surprised how bullish people are on you know Turkey or whatever um, it can change, and then it can change right back in a matter of only a few years. We're not talking. We talked about the semiconductor cycle, I think, on a previous mm-hmm. podcast. You know, saying it's a couple years, but you know, three, four, five years is not long for some of these things to completely switch how people view them. Um, you know, and there can be dramatic moves in their uh, currencies and all that kind of stuff, and you know. Um, they can be changes in their politics that they decide to get serious about some stuff. You know, obviously there's an opportunity for a lot of improvement sometimes in some countries that have some problems that way. If the only thing that you have is no one wants to be in that country, then at least in in a sense you're saying, okay, well, if people get comfortable with this country, boy, is the stock going to go up a lot. Mm -hmm. Sure. If that was ever to happen. Because if you really believe that was the only reason why, if people say, well, I just won't invest in Japan and we'll just won't invest in Turkey or whatever. Um, and then over a period of years, they get comfortable with it, then that would be one of the desirable companies when they looked to invest in that. Huge problem, I should point out to people looking to invest in these companies, though, is that the countries, is that they, or in any countries, to get exposure to it, is that they like to diversify a lot of times. And so what I know people do is like they buy the closed end fund or the ETF or whatever. You know, usually the mix of things in that is very large companies that have very little to do with a representative sample of the economy. Right. So a good example. So like, um, well, how does that make sense though? If it's a very large company? Oh, it happens all the time. So like if you look at, uh, so very, very large companies often don't have that much, uh, um, are not realistic in terms of their, uh, their importance in the economy. So as an example, let's take like, uh, well, Turkey would be one or some other ones. Um, a lot of times huge numbers of banks because the banks have the most scale that they get that big, certain commodity producers. So you realize that you're investing heavily in um, sometimes real estate things in some places, but like real estate developers, um, commodities, so cement things and stuff like that, um, big uh, banks. And then you look at the country and the country also actually has all these services and things like that that don't, don't show up in the stock market at all. So it's very common, I would say. Um, even something like Russia would be a pretty good example in terms of how confused people could be about the society, the economy, and then what publicly traded stocks are. So what publicly traded stocks are skewed the most to oil and banks, right? Then their government 
um, balance and um, their uh, trade, so like export, import stuff, um, is heavily skewed that way, right? But then you think about their society. What does oil really have to do with their whole society? Maybe one out of 20 people in the country works in oil, right? So employment, it's like not very significant, mm -hmm. but it's a huge amount of the, the investment that you would make and um, it's also a huge amount of, um, to some extent, in the economy, um, although mostly it's about in, about trade balance and stuff like that. So when you look at most of these countries, it's very skewed towards things like banks and certain other things that they have that are very uh, are not good representations of the economy, I'd say. And that can be worrying. Um, it would be very worrying to me. Because remember, like compared to the U.S., for instance, almost all countries have much more concentrated banking systems. So if you went to the U.S. and you bought an index, the mix is not so heavily in things like banks, right? Mm -hmm. But then also confusingly in the U.S., if you went and bought indexes and things, you wouldn't get a, a huge overweighting to energy versus the size in the economy because the U.S. has lots of energy things which are not very large. So the fact that ExxonMobil is a fairly large constituent of an index still means that you have a very small amount of um, energy in like an S&P 500 or something versus the importance of it to the U.S. economy, to employment, things like that. So it's very dependent on like what countries, um, what's in the indexes. And sure. they're usually very big companies, companies that are known. So, I mean, energy, banking, things like that, they're known um, to other investors and it's to attract foreign capital and all that. So that's why they're they're um they're just i think they're often the indexes are much less representative right and so it can become a problem and you may not realize that you may like you say there's a country and you think oh i'm going to invest in norway or whatever and then you look and you're like oh i'm basically in oil and salmon yeah mm -hmm. well I'm it's sure like russia things but but i mean there are probably small more technology oriented things or more um things involved in retail and this service and that that you're not getting at I mean, that's when I invest in Japan, I did not really invest heavily in like big export companies and things like that. And that's all that you get if you buy big Japanese indexes. I mean, there's some other stuff in it, but it's very big, like multinational export driven, whatever stuff. And I like the small domestic Japanese companies, you know, um, you know, because like if you buy into if you ask people what, you know, OK, what are some big Japanese companies and stuff for foreign investors? You get names like Sony and Nintendo and stuff, which are multinational things that aren't much more exposed to Japan than anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nintendo gets most of its sales from all other places. Sony is one of the biggest movie studios in the U.S., a big gaming thing in all around the world. Um, you know, you don't, they would never name something that's only in Japan. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? But sometimes it's the most interesting company. So the one that's easier for people to understand is like, okay, what about the Domino's franchise in the, comp in the country? What about the... Um, there was one in Turkey, right, that we looked at. That they own like a bunch of Domino's franchises. Yeah, so there's franchise. Like so there's, you know, Domino's is what, four different publicly traded franchise things around. Um, Coke has a lot of bottlers all around, all those sorts of things. Um, but then there's also just things in a local um, economy that could be... They all have to have their favorite food brands. There's no country that is just all international food brands. Everyone has some cereal or some chocolate bar or some beer or some whatever that's been popular there for a long time and someone has to sell it and there should be someone who owns it. If they've been acquired, it could be by a, a big company um, that's multinational, but usually there's stuff that you can find there. And so you have to dig through them to find those kinds of companies. But if you don't do that and you just buy into the like a, an index, you could get strange exposure to it. And, and sometimes very 
macro, like I was saying, right? Because even in the U.S. right now, would you want your um, uh, your portfolio really to be all about um, interest rates and oil prices and construction activity? I would say those three things for a lot of countries, a lot of emerging countries and things like that, if you look at what's in their indexes, a lot of interest rate risk. Um, a lot of like oil price or some sort of commodity price risk and a lot of construction, uh, right? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people investing in the US, like they own portfolios that have almost no uh, exposure to any of those things and that's what they're used to. And so that even plays up the, unfortunately, the, the volatility of it. And what I always say is people generally don't make money on these things. I've looked and investor returns in investing in this stuff doesn't work. Because if someone invests in a Latin American thing, it goes up 15% a year for 20 years. The average investor makes a couple percent because they get in and out of the wrong times. And you always get in and out of the wrong times in other countries. Your own country where you have the home bias and you have the comfort with it is totally different. But an American investing in Japan is much more likely to pull out of Japan at the wrong time and much more likely to stick in uh, with the U.S. at the right time and vice versa. So you're always at a disadvantage when you're investing in another country. Is that just from like a society thing? You're just boots on the ground, you understand? It's an emotional thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I really think these like diversifying, I know a lot of people do this, a lot of giant institutions. I don't think there's been much benefit to diversifying people away from their home countries as investors. Because the theoretical benefit isn't trickling down to the actual return realized sure. by investors. Mm -hmm. You're basically pushing people into something they don't want to be in and don't feel comfortable with. You're telling them diversification is so important that you should be invested. You know, you should be 0.5% in Russia because Russia is 0.5% of whatever public trade things of the this group I want to make for you. And then people go, oh, I don't know what I own. I don't want to be in it, whatever. They shouldn't have been in it in the first place. They can stick with something that carries it out all in the U.S. Like, for instance, a category that people talked about earlier this year and stuff was um, local currency denominated emerging market stuff. So that stuff like the bonds of uh, Russia, right? Um, and lots of other countries. But so they're denominating their own currency and um, their governments um, or their, um, their, uh, their corporate bonds that are kind of junk yields, but they're, if it wasn't for the problems of their government, they'd be investment grade. So like a good example is you mentioned that Coke bottler, right? If I remember right, I think um, they're rated by like S&P and Moody's or, or, or Fitch or whatever. And their rating was not particularly good. But the rating explanation is that they have the maximum rating allowed for something which is denominated in, um, it, if, I'm sorry, for something which has is under the umbrella of sovereign risk of Turkey. So regardless of whether it's dollar denominated or, or not, um, that they don't award uh ratings credit ratings to corporations that are higher than the credit rating of the country right and so basically they're saying we can't give everything in turkey is a junk bond to us right mm -hmm, sure and i think this has happened in other places i think some there were some companies some large companies in south africa which were rate, rated well in terms of their corporate risks but are kind of junk type ratings or are not so great or low investment grade ratings because of the risks that were in the the what they saw as the government risks there right so anyway you put people into those sorts of things you know and they don't understand what they own they get out of it at the wrong time you could imagine and they just can't stick with it forever so i don't think there's been a big benefit to that but it's the same thing as i don't blame like you know an investment strategy of like um arc 
or whatever. But I just think that arc innovation. Yeah. That just the way that it, the pattern that will be with investors makes it hard that even if you're a great investor for people to stick with that, you know, and so the investor returns are so much lower than the, the fund returns usually. Mm -hmm. And that's really true with emerging markets uh, and just like just far away foreign things in general. People, you see it all the time. You see it even in blog things where people talk about investing in them and then pulling out of them that way. Um, at the wrong times, they get scared because of some event that happens. They think, how could this event happen? I didn't anticipate it. Uh, this is my mistake for investing in this country. I shouldn't have where I didn't understand that this kind of thing happens. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, and but in the U.S., the same things happen and you don't worry about it. You know, there's a contested election and people storming a capital and stuff and you go, oh, that's fine. That's yeah. just... You know, because you understand what the situation is. Mm -hmm. But if you saw those same things in a country in Eastern Europe that you're investing in, you'd pull your money. Yeah, sure. You know, and so a lot of times you don't understand what's really going on and what that means for the, your companies. You know, you can see things that are very big news headlines and things and react very calmly to them in your country and in other countries you can't. And so I'm not saying that people shouldn't invest in other countries. I'm saying if you think seriously about those risks ahead of time, you can invest in them, all of that. But you also have to be very aware that your average investor is going to do much worse investing in other countries because the the um, people they entrust the money to, the professionals who manage those funds, are going to do much better than the flows in and out of those funds. You know, Now, you could invest in like closed-end things, take advantage of that so you're not – the fund isn't being distorted – by the behavior of your other investors because that gets into a more complicated thing but even the underlying returns of the fund get weirdly distorted by the, if you're like a open-end thing and you allow money in and out then you have to sell when you don't want to buy when you don't want to but that's not the case for a closed end so, so if you had a big country discount in a closed end fund and you liked the country then you could buy that yourself but that would require that you know that you have the emotional wherewithal to handle these sorts of things. But if you do, and you can handle crises and things like that, then often investing in a country's uh, closed-end fund, as long as you understand that, like, you are, you know, read what's in it, but it could be all, you know, banks and oil and construction mm -hmm. and weird things um, that are just, you know, I, I not that they're weird, but they're three times or more the size of what they really are in terms of GDP in the country or something like that. Um, and they're often very cyclical and stuff. Uh, but so if you do that, then I think for the right investor, investor has a really strong stomach for that, then closed-end funds in other countries makes a lot of sense because you can also get them at a discount sometimes, and that would be a good way to do it. But um, like just having a portion of your investment in riskier countries. Just to get I exposure? I think it's, it, it's not going to end well. Mm -hmm. It adds risk, and it doesn't really give you returns for it for the average person doing this. If it's like a diversification thing, no. For professionals doing some stuff that they understand what they're doing, I think it makes sense. But I don't think like for individuals, it's very good unless you can be really comfortable with foreign countries. And a lot of times you can't be. Um, emotionally, it's hard for people. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the Both the Bus here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, if this is the first time you are joining us, be sure to check out all the content we put out there on the internet, uh, follow me at Focus Compound on Twitter. If you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see uh, that is my handle at Focus Compound. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusedCompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.